Uh, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. That's where we are this morning. We're going to read the entire chapter together. And like uh, much of what we've encountered in the book of Revelation, there's apoc apocalyptic symbolism, and it's just loaded with imagery that is drawn from, uh, from Old Testament prophets. Um, but it's got a purpose here uh, for us this morning. There's a purpose for the first readers, and uh, we want to do our best to understand what that is. So, Revelation chapter 17. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. It is authoritative. Previous section, uh, the, we were shown the, the bowls being poured out by the seven angels. And now as we get to 17, it begins. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is, is, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for beast that was and is not, and is an eighth but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into the hearts, into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is God's word. Would you bow with me as we seek uh, the Spirit's help in this time, which we need. Our Father, 
we thank you that you have spoken, that we have your words in a book. We thank you that we can give ourselves to them, but we know that um, more than anything, it isn't our abilities that apply these things to our hearts. It is your spirit. And so we're asking, Father, for something supernatural to happen in this room. And these words being possibly quite confusing and full of strange imagery, we need an understanding that only your spirit can give. And Father, as the messenger of that, I, I know I'm weak, but you are strong. And I pray that you will accomplish great things in our minds and in our hearts. So, Father, give us a willingness to hear, a willingness to respond in repentance and faith if necessary, a willingness to, to take your word as that encouragement that we need. And may, in all of this, and may, Father, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be glorified. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, lots of fantastic imagery uh, in this section of the Scripture. As I was thinking about this, and you see the word prostitute in this, um, comes up often. I was thinking about um, how to start uh, this and just kind of set a, kind of a frame around it. As I was thinking, I, I, I know this to be true, and I, I trust that most of you do as well, that one of the most beautiful of the human institutions that have been given by God is marriage. It's a lifelong exclusive covenant between a man and woman. It is very much so the foundation for human civilization and the thriving of children. And one of the most destructive things to a marriage is infidelity. It's a betrayal of the deepest kind. It's, it's not the unforgivable sin, but it leaves, and those of you who have experienced this, it leaves a deep emotional scar and it wounds children deeply as well. Even when there is repentance, even when there is forgiveness and restoration, it leaves a profoundly deep scar. Now, I hope you know this, that marriage is much more than a divinely appointed human institution. God's intent, in fact, is that faithful marriage serves really as a picture of God's covenant love for his own people. When the affections of man turn away from the Lord, to idols, or to anything else. God likens it to marital unfaithfulness, a betrayal of the deepest kind. And the idols themselves, we can see this in Scripture, the Lord regards as prostitutes. They are interlopers. They don't belong in the relationship. They are cheap and ugly substitutes. So as we turn our, our attention here to Revelation 17, and just, just to frame this, uh, this is how I see this, and I'm really leaning heavily on G.K. Beale. Um, but chapter 17 through 19, verse 21, is a, a large interpretive snapshot of, of the sixth and seventh bowls in the last chapter. And this culminates in the, the final triumph of Christ over evil. So we come to verse 1, we see one of the seven angels in the bowl says this. He says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now in John's vision, he's, he's being shown that she, this prostitute, representing 
really the unfaithfulness of mankind to God, she has captivated the nations. And we'll be shown, John is being shown, and we, because he writes it, we will be shown, shown how she meets her demise in the end. So, of course, I, as I read these sections of Revelation, what are we to understand this morning from what we read? Well, we do know this to be true from the scriptures. We know that in the end, Christ's victory over sin and death, that will be recognized by all of creation. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says that in Philippians chapter 2. Everyone will know. And this, of course, includes Babylon. Now, for all of us who belong to Christ, I take it that we need the reminder that we live in a metaphorical Babylon. That's, that's the environment we live in. I go back to Genesis chapter 11. We see the, the scene there, the Tower of Babel. Babel, the same word as Babylon. It really represents, uh, I mean, it's an actual civilizations in the, in the scriptures, but metaphorically it really represents any human civilization that is away from God. Really, it's an idolatry of self a society that is ultimately built on a prideful confidence that man can achieve anything he sets his mind to without God. That effectively is Babylon. We don't need the Lord. We don't even believe he exists. We can do anything we want. That's what we saw at the Tower of Babel. That's what we saw under Nebuchadnezzar. He praised his own achievements, and the Lord, of course, humbled him. So here's what we can know about Babylon, this metaphorical Babylon. Three things that I took from this text. First of all, it's alluring. It's alluring. Second, it's satanic. But the good news in the end, it is doomed to fail. So it's alluring, it's satanic, and it's doomed to fail. Now, let's talk about it being alluring. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any uh, truth to the claim, but I, I saw an interview not that long ago where the guest in this interview was claiming that snack food companies, that they're chemically engineering their products to be addictive in the same way that the tobacco companies put that stuff in the cigarettes. Now, whether that's true or not, I know from my own experience that I find it really difficult to have just a few potato chips. I, maybe you can identify with this. Are chips evil? Well, I'm not going to go that far, but something in me makes me want to eat the entire bag. It's just to have a few doesn't seem to be, I just want to keep going and going. Now, that's just a, a silly illustration, but there's this powerful appeal to something in my body, in my flesh, which I have to really think hard. Don't keep going. And if I don't care, I'll eat the bag. I think all of us know what it's like to get a taste of something or an experience of something so alluring that they just don't want to leave it behind. And that would be good or bad. I mean, these could be good things. You get a taste of a, a, a joyful vacation with your family. Say, I, I just don't want to go home. But they can be evil things, too. You get a taste of something that is corruptive and corrosive and addictive, and, and it destroys you. But perhaps you've been in that circumstance. You just can't leave it behind. So whether it's food or golf or something else. Well, what we see here is this prostitute in verse 1 is, is described here as seated on many 
waters. And verse 16 tells us what that means, gives us the uh, interpretation of it. These are peoples and multitudes and nations and language. That's what it means. And I think what this part of the vision, this image, is supposed to show us is that it's symbolic of the woman's, the prostitute's, influence in the world. She has a powerful influence. Verse 2, with whom, describing the woman, with whom, that's the prostitute, the kings of the earth engage in immoral acts. Again, this is very vivid language, very PG-13 this morning. I guess I'm grateful it's Church for Kids Day. There's no way of avoiding some of the words that come up. I'm trying to soften it as much as possible. Now, we don't have to guess who this prostitute is. Her name is written on her forehead. This is verse 5, Babylon the Great, called the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. What a title. Whatever, whatever immorality that has been, she is the author of it. She is the one over all of it. This is, this is her, her calling card. So we need to get that mental picture, and it's this analogy. And as horrifying as this is, I think we're, we're meant to feel it from this perspective. The, the man, dissatisfied with his obligations, his responsibilities, he's dissatisfied with his wife, and he wanders to a place in town that he should never go to find comfort in the arms of a stranger. Of your wife, just that imagery should feel so repugnant and repulsive and offensive. If you're the man imagining this, you should feel the horror of how destructive that is. Verse 4, the nations that have rejected the Lord, they've been captivated by her physical beauty. She is arrayed in purple, scarlet, and they're enticed. These nations are enticed by her wealth. She's wearing gold and jewels and pearls, and she's holding this golden cup. It's all so very alluring, and the attraction makes it difficult for, for them to stay away. But this golden cup, it's full of impurities, we're told. It's full of abominations and immorality. This, this Babylon, this prostitute, she appeals to the nations, and they're, they're craving for the honor of others. They're craving for wealth, for pleasure. And that allure has made the nations drunk on her offerings. And they don't want to walk away. They can't walk away. They are captivated. And for her part, the woman, she takes this great pleasure in killing those who belong to the Lamb. That's the imagery for the saints, those that have been redeemed in Christ. She takes great delight in destroying them. She is, in fact, drunk on their blood, the ones murdered for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. Again, this godless human civilization, it's Babylon. And Babylon is no friend of the people of God, and we live in it. It's around us. Like the first century saints who were hearing this, Rome to them was that Babylon. They felt that, that pressure towards idolatry. They felt the economic deprivation. There were times when it went all right for them. And there were other times it got really difficult, and they were, they were attached to stakes and burned as human torches happened under Nero. Now, we don't experience that kind of persecution 
but it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Like the exiled Israelites that were captives of the Chaldeans, we are exiles here in metaphorical Babylon. And while we have to make our home here, it's really a temporary home while we wait for Christ's return. So we have to keep it in perspective. We have to think through the times we're living. It's easy to kind of say, oh, it's, it's, everything's good. But John is saying, don't trust it. Yes, we have to live here. We have to participate. Yes, citizens, you need to vote and do what you can to make it better. That's not against any of that. But understand. Understand there's something deeper going on. So, so resist the temptation to buy into antichrist philosophies. You will be tempted, and I'm sure you've experienced this already, you will be tempted to go along in order to get along. But you do have to draw some hard lines for yourself. Now, for, for first century Ephesians, when they heard the gospel, they had to decide. They were not going to make these shrines to the, to the Artemis cult anymore. That had economic implications, and it began a riot. All these people turning to Christ took away the economics of those who were making the living, making these shrines to Artemis. And they were persecuted as a result. These days, you see these things in the news. The decision not to bake the cake, not to create the website. No, it's the hard decision you have to make not to go to the ceremony that promotes and affirms the same-sex union. And I've said this before, and maybe some take issue with this, but if you go to a so-called wedding, you're saying, God bless you. I hope, I hope you thrive in that relationship. It's not a righteous relationship. And I've said this before. You have to object to not going. Have them for dinner after and say why. It's not about hate. It's not hating them. It's just simply saying, I can't affirm what you want to do. We were up in Canada over the summer visiting some family. And we went to this little town called Alora. And, and I remember every single shop, maybe with very few exceptions, they had this rainbow flag. And I was trying to imagine what it would be like for a little boutique Christian shop owner to be in that little town where everybody had the flag. Rainbow. Because we know what it means, right? It's hard. And you'll have to make your own decisions, but we have to keep Babylon at arm's length and understand what it is. Do we buy in or do we draw the line? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you not to throw your lot in with Babylon. And this is so tempting, and it gets very confusing. It's even for Christians today, and, and perhaps you know this. Churches want to be viewed as welcoming this is a famous church in um, Georgia. I'm going to just say his name. It's led by a guy named Andy Stanley. He's made headlines recently for a conference that they hosted. And what he has described the whole thing is saying, we want to draw a big inclusive circle around all kinds of immoral behaviors. They claim to affirm what the Bible says, but they say, yeah, but it's okay. I know you're, you know, God's cool with it. 
So they say, we're drawing a circle. We don't draw hard lines. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the church needs to draw lines. That was 1 Corinthians 5.13. The Lord Jesus warned the church early in Revelation about Thyatira. He said this, because they had compromised. He said this, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jezebel, that's, again, metaphorical, symbolic. Jezebel in the Old Testament was the wife of King Ahab of Israel. She was infamous for her idolatry, for commitment to idolatry as the prophet of commitment to battle worship. She killed the prophets of the Lord. Now, in centuries past, there have been idols of wood and of stone, idols of emperors and other false gods conjured up by the imaginings of people who will not submit to the true God. Now, our culture, our culture doesn't bow to idols of wood and stone, but our culture is full of the idolatry of self. And it's that spirit of Jezebel that we should not buy into. The culture says, do whatever you feel and celebrate it. And you have to affirm me in doing whatever I feel and celebrate. And the people of God say, no. We celebrate what God designs. We celebrate what God says is good. And the rest we oppose. We don't hate, but we can't affirm. Belonging to Christ. If you belong to Christ today, you and I were rescued from that. Because of God's mercy and grace, you have been freed from the lies that captivate all those who are headed to an eternity without Christ. You've been freed from that. So I'll say it again. Keep the culture at arm's length. View it critically. Be on guard for subtle lies that, that promise good, that are just merely appeals to the sinful cravings. Peter says this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is to say the unbelievers. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they're going to call you doing evil, a hater, a bigot. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's when Christ returns. They're going to glorify God. They're going to call you a hater and a bigot now. But they will glorify God on the day of Christ's visitation. They're going to say, you're right. To the end. Well, second, so Babylon is very alluring. Secondly, Babylon's power is satanic, satanic. Now, in, the, in movies, art, cartoons, Satan is often pictured as this red-horned creature holding a trident. Sometimes he has ram's horns, a tail, and hooves as well. You've seen that, perhaps. Now, this depiction of him has evolved over time, but it's likely that some of this is taken from depictions of pagan deities. But it is a cartoonish 
film. Even when they seek to make it in horror films, it's still cartoonish. And for the most part, people go, it's just cartoon. It's just made up. You gotta wonder if Satan's behind these things so that people go, yeah, it's just, just pretend. So we have no physical depiction of Satan in the Bible. None is needed. But we do know Satan's power. We do know his modus operandi. We do know that. It's deception. Jesus called him the father of lies. And in our text, the beast, I would suggest, is symbolic uh, of creaturely embodiment of his power. You see, Satan doesn't present himself out there. He influences a system, a structure, controls it. They might not bow down to Satan if he was to show himself, but they'll certainly buy into Babylon. It's important to understand that his, Babylon's power is satanic. Now, we see this. We see the woman, Babylon. She, she is depicted in, in the vision as sitting on a beast. That's verse 3. The beast is scarlet, full of blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns. This is where we get the crazy imagery here. So who or what is this beast? And you see in this, this image that the beast and the woman are very much connected. They're shown together, right? And I was thinking about it this way. I think like a warrior on a horse, this woman, this prostitute, has formidable power because of the beast. She gets her authority, her power from the beast. That beast, we're told, comes from the bottomless pit, verse 8. And I, I take it here as an allusion to Daniel's vision of the beast which is likened to the kings that come up from the, from the earth. That's Daniel 7. And I take it that this beast is the Antichrist, or the spirit of the Antichrist. In the unholy trinity, which we dealt with earlier, again, Satan's task effectively is to counterfeit the things of God, right? Whatever God does, he has, a, he has an ugly counterfeit. So I call it the unholy trinity. It's Satan's, this beast is Satan's parody of Christ, He's parodying Christ. So, from the text, contrasted with the Christ who lived, died, and rose again and ascended to the Father, look at the contrasting description. The beast was, is not, died, is about to rise, but not to ascend to Christ, but rather to be destroyed, verse 8. Again, also a parody of the description of the Lord who was, who is, and who is to come. You see this, this, this word play going on here. Again, it's a parody. It's an ugly counterfeit. Now, I've said this in weeks past. I, uh, I don't believe the Antichrist is necessarily a single historical individual. And I rest on what John says in his epistles, his first and second epistles. He says there have been many. So he, that or it, Antichrist, denies that Jesus is the Christ, denies his coming in the flesh, denies the Father as well, is a spirit in the world already, it's already in the world, it does not confess Christ, so I think that's authoritative, I know it is. And so these dwellers on the earth, again, that's the description of those whose names have not been written in the book of life, that's verse 8. These dwellers on the earth, now they are marveling at the beast, they are I take it that they're captivated by the beast and buy into his program. Now, in verse 9, we get to where John then interprets for the reader what he has seen. He says this, This calls 
for a mind with wisdom. Now, I got to say, I mean, I, I'm trying to have a mind of wisdom here. I read through this so many times, and, and it was very difficult to conclude anything. But he explains, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. That's the mind of wisdom says, okay, the seven heads, there's seven mountains. Now, that very much could refer symbolically to Rome, which was known to be built on seven mountains. But I take it that that imagery is not limited to Rome. For the first century believers, that was their present-day Babylon. But that this exists through, through history. Now, we're told that these seven heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one exists in the present, one is yet to come. And that one that is yet to come, and I take it that that's at the end, will remain only for a little while. So that's immediately before Jesus comes back. Now we switch to the horns. Horns, they are ten kings. They have not yet received royal power. So I take that this is all yet at the end. And when they do get that authority, it will be short-lived for an hour. And what these kings are is they are in agreement with one another, and they give this power over to the beast. So they're functioning in the world. These authorities, these nations, these kings, they get together, they give their power to the beast, and, and it's being set up for something. But we'll get there. There's an eighth horn, verse 11, which is identified as the beast. So this is where the imagery gets confusion. There's the beast with horns, and then one of the horns is the beast. Again, this is why I struggled through this. But it's apocalyptic imagery. It's symbolic. The ten kings, along with the beast, were told, will make war on the Lamb, that's the Christ, who will ultimately conquer them. And then it will be over, and it will be the end. Now, I know many have speculated on... on which kings and kingdoms in history are, are in view here. But here's where I land on this. I take it that the seven and the ten are very much symbolic. Numbers in Revelation, to me, seem very symbolic. They represent that time until Christ returns. So it's during the period until Christ returns. From when he showed up on the earth, was crucified, buried, raised, ascended to the Father, all of this has been going on, but there's some stuff that's still yet at the end. Now, seven, as I've said before, that's a number of divine completion. It's suggesting that God has ordained these things, right? Seven kings. But ten, which come later, that's a number of human completeness. You think of your own body, like you've got ten fingers, ten toes, right? Ten, that, that, like you've got everything you need. That's a, a number really of human completeness. And as for this beast, identified as this eighth horn, but also part of the seven, which is confusing, I think that what that indicates is descent from the seven, but of a greater kind, greater power, greater influence. And I take it that this is towards the end when Christ comes back. Yet, like the rest, this eighth will be defeated by the Lamb. And I take it that the, the ten kings, human completeness, that eighth horn, the beast, will emerge in a united way just before the end. So that ten, the totality of human authority structures and the beast align together and Christ will conquer them in the last hour. Now, best I can do with that. But what can we say about it? Satanic power is what is behind human civilization that stands in opposition to God. 
The Bible tells us that Satan is very much active in the world. 1 Peter 5.8 says he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to devour. He is influencing and corrupting human institutions in order to make war with the people of God. That said, that said, he is bound in a sense because of, because of what Christ has accomplished at the cross. Colossians 2.14, it tells us that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here's what is so glorious about this as well. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has already triumphed over the forces of evil in his death and resurrection that covered our sin. So he is bound in some sense. And that's, and because that's true for all of us who belong to Christ, for all whose names have been written in the book of life, we must and we can defend ourselves, maybe more accurately, we have been given the means of our defense against this satanic influence that is around us, mediated through Babylon. We have a defense. The Apostle Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's the reality, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's describing exactly what Babylon is and getting its power from Satan. All this stuff is going on. Paul says, this is our struggle, brothers and sisters. What does he say? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, if you're not in Christ, all this talk of a spiritual battle, it's going to seem quite silly to you. I recognize. And I understand why you might think this way. The Bible explains that to you. The God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Spiritual blindness. You see, if someone is blind to the glory of Christ, that individual will also be blind to Satan's diabolical schemes to corrupt but for all of us who belong to Christ, I hope you're with me. We see it. And our protection, according to Ephesians 6, is that we are on the side of truth, knowing that our righteousness is in Christ. We have the good news that we have peace with God. We have faith as our shield against Satan's schemes. We have the assurance of our eternal salvation in Christ. And we have the Word of God, the Bible. We have the, all of that to remind us of these things. Not only that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can pray so that we do remain alert and persevere until Christ returns. And all of these protections are yours in Christ, brothers and sisters. They are yours in Christ. 
And we're reminded of them every time we gather like this. And I would say it's one of the very reasons we must gather like this. Well, finally, Babylon is doomed to fall. Doomed to fail and fall. You know your history, Rome, uh, they lasted from 27 B.C. to 1453 A.D., at least in these. Egypt, 3150 B.C. to 332 B.C., then they fell. Greece, 800 B.C. to 600 A.D., then they were no more. The Persian Empire, 500 B.C. to 651 A.D., what's left? Nothing. The Mayan Empire, 2000 B.C. to 1540 A.D., that's a long time, but they are no more. The Assyrians, 1920 B.C. to 1311 A.D., gone. The Ottoman Empire, 1299 A.D. to 1923, they were doomed when they sided with Germany in World War II. Gone. Nothing left. And what brought the demise of these empires? The causes, of course, are varied. If you are a student of history, what they have in common, I would suggest, is that they are merely human. And since humans are flawed, they eventually become decadent. Every human civilization has fallen. Babylon, which really in a metaphorical sense captures every one of these empires, including our own time. Let's not be blind to that. These empires have fallen and will fall again. And that's what John sees. And Christ will be the clear victor because of who he is. Verse 14, they, that is the beast and the ten kings, will make war on the lamb. So that's all the world powers aligned with the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. That's glorious. Lord of lords, king of kings, and if you're with Christ, chosen and faithful, that's who you are. Now, question then is how will Babylon fall? How will Satan meet his final and ultimate defeat? And I would suggest to you we're being told that Satan's own structures will self-destruct. That'll be part of it. Verse 16, the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. What? They're, they're, they're now battling internally. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So she is earlier this prostitute, earlier pictured, seated on the beast. And in, in a sense, the, the beast will rear up and like an out-of-control bronco, as it were, toss her to the ground, trample her, leave her discarded and humiliated. Her flesh will be devoured, burned up with fire. Nothing will be left. Her influence and power eliminated. Babylon will be destroyed by the very structures motivated by the beast. Why? This is how God decided to... to to, be in, to bring an end to them, for God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose so that they are being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. God put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose. We don't have to, we don't have to worry, wonder, how is this going to happen? Is it, is it, no, God is going to do it. He will bring it down in his own time. Now, the next chapter, it's going to give us a lot more detail on our corruption and, and demise. But for now, it's just worth considering that the very nature of evil and how it is contrasted with that which is good 
the very nature of evil, evil and how it's contrasted with that which is good. First of all, talking about good. God is good, and all that God does is good. So what is good brings life. What is good grows and flourishes. What is good is beauty, it's order, it's purposefulness. What is good is secure, it's life-giving, it's peaceful. What is good encompasses all, all that is true. Now, by contrast, Satan is evil. And when evil is not restrained, brings death. Evil wilts. Evil starves. Evil is ugly. It's disordered. It's chaotic. It's disarrayed. Evil is insecure. Evil is life-draining. It is agitating. And it encompasses all that is false. Now, Satan knows no other way. Jesus described him as a thief. He said this about him. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. By alternative, Jesus said, I came that they may have life have it abundantly. Now these kings and kingdoms of the earth that have allied themselves with Babylon, whose, whose values are evil, they will meet their demise because Satan is a destroyer. So that's the contrast, right? There's life, there's death. I know every, everyone here, everyone wants life. And I know that everyone hearing or, or seeing this from the live stream, if somebody should just click onto it, is not a believer, you want abundant life too. But that cannot be found when you don't acknowledge God. And, and the Apostle Paul explains this in, in Romans chapter 1. He describes this trajectory that happens when God-denying, and I would say anti-Christ thinking, takes hold. And it ends in wrath. I'll remind you what that says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Skipping down a little bit. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, denying God. They, they needed something to replace it, right? They turned to idols, idols looking like animals or, or man. And the result, the result, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God says that he gave them up to dishonorable passions. And what he's referring to, and he's, he's explicit here in the passage, I didn't read it, he gave them up to dishonorable passions, and he's specifically talking about homosexual relations, a debased mind set on unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and a whole litany of sins that he lists. I take it here that, that the mind of people and peoples, people groups, set on idolatry, God will give them up. He will turn them over. He will remove his restraint, and they will self-destruct in this world, and they will receive in themselves 
the due penalty for their error, Romans 1.27. So all who want the abundant, rich, lavish, unending, joyful life, Jesus is the only one who can give it. And it's only by faith in him alone. Here's the reality. <clears throat> From the time each of us were conceived, we've been infected with the sin virus. From the time we were born, we, we were on a trajectory to destruction. And the only reason that you're not there now, the only reason you're saved from that, is what Paul des describes in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To what end? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants to do in the coming ages. He wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's why God was merciful to you. And that's the effect, the effect of the gospel. That's the effect of believing the good news that the Son of God bore in His body the just wrath for your sin. That He did that at the cross. That's the effect. That in Jesus' resurrection from the grave, all who have believed in Him can cling to that hope of immeasurable riches in the eternal kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, what I think that does, what I know that does, is that gives us perspective, and it gives us strength to endure. And we can endure now, so that we're not captivated by the achievements, the, the empty promises, the, the deceptive beauty and deceptive glory of Babylon. We can see it for what it is. And that because of the word of God, we, we see the satanic influence in the world and are spiritually protected from it, even, even if we should suffer physically. And why are we being shown these things? To be reminded that evil will meet its end in the final victory of Christ. And we look forward to that day. I'll remind you, this shows up a few times through Revelation. John's being told these things. We are to take these things to heart because at the beginning of the, the letter, at the beginning of the book, we're told we bless, we're blessed if we read them and take them to heart. And that blessing ultimately is this. It's a call, Revelation 13.10 and other places. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's what God wants. He wants you to endure. He wants you to be strong in faith, even in the face of the challenges around us. So brothers and sisters, simple exhortation. May God keep us faithful 
for the day of Christ's return. Father, that's what we want. We want you to keep us faithful. And we know, Lord, if we are wise and discerning, we can see that the, the structures around us, they ebb and flow, and they have power, or greater or lesser power, and, and there are times when evil seems to prevail and others when it does not. Lord, we can't exactly pinpoint every satanic move, but Lord, we know in general that this world is, is passing away. Until Christ returns, we're to be salt and light. We're to be uh, a preserving influence on the culture as much as you give us the grace to do that. But we know in the end that evil will have that last gasp and they'll try to destroy Jesus. Satan will try to bring him down and he will ultimately be defeated. So Father, if that involves Suffering and persecution, difficulties, keep us, protect us, keep us faithful for the day of Christ's return. We want him to be glorified, and we want to enjoy his glory on that day. So keep us, for his sake and our good.